the series that we're in right now, we've called this The King is Coming. We're talking about King David, obviously, in the original context, but ultimately we're looking to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The sermon title this morning is When Enemies Surround You. When Enemies Surround You. This was certainly the situation for David as he is once again on the run from King Saul. Now, let me give you a little bit of background context, just in case you haven't been with us or maybe you're visiting. So, let's look first of all at where we are literally in the geography of things. We are in present-day Middle East, the present-day Israel. And remember, at this point in history, the temple has not been built yet, and the tabernacle that was in Shiloh has been destroyed. If you go back a few weeks to the beginning of Samuel, you'll remember that Samuel tells Eli that his sons are going to die and that the ark is going to be taken captive, and that's exactly what happens. The Philistines do that, and they also, though we don't have it recorded in 1 Samuel, they go out to Shiloh and they level the tabernacle. So now, when we look at where we are in this part of 1 Samuel, There is a tabernacle of sorts that has been built and established. It's in a town called Nob, which is very near present-day Jerusalem. And because Jerusalem wasn't yet taken over by the Israelites and there was no temple built there, there was no palace for the king, the king, who is Saul at the present time, is set up in his own area. In fact, he's got his, his own town where he grew up. And that is where we're going to find him as we go through this section. It's called Saul of Gibeah. So he is there in this town that belongs to him, setting up his palace, his place of operation. And David, back in chapter 16, has already been anointed by Samuel. He's going to be the king. But that was kind of a secret anointing. Only a few people knew about it, like his family and Samuel. And so if David was declared to be the king, then clearly Saul would have all the more reason to try to kill him. But you see, word has gotten out, people know David's going to be the king, and so he is on the run. Saul calls him in to try to be a servant to him. He plays music for Saul. Saul's mind is put at ease when he is troubled by evil spirits, but that has now turned. David chooses not to show up for one of the regular feasts, Saul's son, Jonathan, makes an excuse for David. Saul realizes what's going on. And so Jonathan goes out into the field and through a clever way of delivering the message, tells David that he's got no hope in the court of the king. It's over for him. He's done. In fact, if he comes back, Saul's going to kill him. So that's the situation. We've got a little tabernacle set up in Nob. We've got Saul with his palace set up in his hometown. We've got David, who has been expelled from the court, expelled from the presence of the king, and he is on the run. This is where we're going to pick up today. And the main point of the message today, the main argument, should be listed there at the top of your bulletin, and it's simply this, that the humble king will trust in Yahweh. The humble king will trust in Yahweh. Now, when you think about a king today, you probably don't think of the word humility right away. Kings are typically not known for their humility. They don't wear humble clothing. They don't live in humble houses. They don't drive humble cars. 
In fact, if you're a king or you're a queen, uh, you go out of your way to be extravagant, to demonstrate your glory. But what we're going to see today is that the Scripture flips that around, and it says this true king, the humble king, is the one who puts all of his trust in Yahweh. Yahweh God is the one who will establish him. Now, this might be new to you, that word Yahweh, so just in case you're wondering, that's the word that the Bible uses to describe the covenant-keeping God. God has different names in the Scriptures based on what he's doing. But Yahweh is the name that he gave to himself. It's his personal name. If you were to sign a contract, that's what he would say. And when he makes the agreement with his people, he says, it is Yahweh, my name that I'm revealing to you. I am the one who will do this. He is the one who has made the promise to David. He is the one who David looks to for help, and he is the one who David trusts. So, six chapters, three main ideas. Number one, we're going to see in this that David is pursued by his enemies, he is betrayed by his people, and he is vindicated by his works. He is pursued by his enemies, he is betrayed by his people, and he is vindicated by his works. Let's begin in the first one, which is this. He is pursued by his enemies. We see this in chapter 21 and 22. To begin with, the story opens up here in chapter 21 with David coming to this town of Nob. And as we said earlier, Nob is where the tabernacle was set up. And the tabernacle was that place where you had the table for the bread, and you had the lampstand for the lamps, and you had the veil and the ark behind it. And David goes into this place, and the priest, whose name is Ahimelech, is there, and he sees David come in, and he's very nervous right away. Ahimelech doesn't know why David's here, why he's alone. And David says to him, Ahimelech, I am on a special mission from the king. And let's be honest, David lies. Now, we could try to judge David's motives, but that's not what we're going to do this morning. This is a narrative. I'm simply telling you what happened, not why it happened or whether it should have happened. If we were to put a positive spin on this, it would simply be that David is trying to give Ahimelech some degree of culpable deniability. He wants to be able to stand before Saul because he knows Ahimelech's going to get in trouble, and at least he didn't divulge to Ahimelech what's really going on. And so he makes this stuff. It's kind of a weak story, isn't it? I mean, David might be a brilliant poet. He might have written so many psalms, but David is not a good liar. I mean, David goes up, and this is his excuse. Oh, Ahimelech, um, I'm on this mission from Saul, and you know what? I had to leave so quickly, I forgot my sword. I mean, this is all David does. David's basically a mercenary. David's the guy who just killed Goliath earlier. David is trying to tell Ahimelech, well, you know, I was in a rush. <laughs> I slept in. I had to just throw on whatever was on the floor and just get out the door. You know how it is sometimes. And so Ahimelech says, okay, well, I'll give you something to handle that, but what else do you need? And he says, well, I need some food. My men are out there, and we've got to get some food as well. And Ahimelech says, well, you know, I don't have any food for you. All I have are the actual official loaves of bread that were meant to be here presented to God as a sign, as a remembrance of all the times that he's looked after us. And David says, I'll take it. And Ahimelech says, well, normally you wouldn't be allowed to, but I guess in this particular situation, as long as you guys are, are clean, as long as you're ceremonial clean, uh, you can have it. And so David takes the bread, and then he says, do you have a sword? And Ahimelech says, uh, let me think for a second. Hey, I do have a sword, as a matter of fact. It's over here behind the ephod, behind the, the thing that the priest wore in order to discern the will of God. He said, it's right over here. And he, he grabs it, and he takes it out. He says, this is the sword 
that belonged to Goliath, the giant that you killed. And one of my favorite lines is right here at the end of chapter 21. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, who you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, this is such a great line, there is none like that. Give it to me. And so here's David. He's got some bread. He's got his men fed. He's got his sword. But he's still on the run. Where is he going to go? David does something very interesting in the next section. He flees to Gath. Gath is one of the main cities in, in the Philistine region, the enemies of Israel. And he goes over there and he says, I'm basically going to hire myself out likely as a mercenary for the Philistines. Obviously, they know that I'm a good fighter. I just killed Goliath. Maybe they can use me. Maybe I'm going to find some shelter and some help in the territory of my enemy. And so as he's making his way in there, something interesting starts to happen. He hears this song. And the song goes like this. Saul has killed his thousands. David is ten thousands. Now, I don't know the tune. But, 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 you know, imagine it went something like, you know, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Something like that. I mean, it's a happy thing. It's kind of an upbeat thing. And you might be thinking that David's going to walk in there and be like, it's me, yeah, you know, ticker tape parade. But what happens? David, David hears a song and he starts to fear. He's like, uh-oh. You know why? Because uh, the last time he heard this song, it didn't go very well for him because Saul was super jealous. But this time when he hears the song, he's making another connection. You know who the 10,000s were that David was killing? Philistines. And so he's already in town, and now he's got to come up with some kind of solution. So he pretends to go crazy. And he goes in, and he starts scratching on the gate, and he starts drooling all over his beard. And this brings us to, in chapter 21, perhaps like one of my favorite lines in the Bible. If you want to put this on a coffee mug, I'd buy it. If you want to embroider this on a doily, I'd use it. He says this, verse 15 of chapter 21. Achish, the king, identifies David as a crazy man, and he says, Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Do I lack crazy people in this town? Like, we don't have enough weirdos. You've got to bring me this one. This could be my life verse. <laughs> and at the end of Galatians, now let no one cause me trouble. Maybe on my office door I'll have these two. Let no one cause me trouble, and do I lack madmen? But from there he makes this really interesting shift, and he says, I'm going to go from here. I'm not going to be with the Philistines, and I'm going to make my way down to a cave in Adullam. And eventually, his family gets word that he's there, and so he goes down to Adullam. This is chapter 22. And there his family comes down to meet him, including his brothers. And I think at this point, the brothers, remember the other seven that were all passed over to be king? Samuel says, not you, 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 ah, but you, David. All those brothers passed over. They now understand that David really is the king, and they're already suffering for it because Saul's people are no doubt persecuting them too. It's not just David. It goes to the whole family. And so they come down with him and also with David's parents, Jesse, his father, remember. But there were more people there too, and, and this is really interesting. Uh, it's all the riffraff begin to gather around David. They're, they're described with using three words, the distressed, 
the ones who are in debt and the ones who are depressed in spirit. So distress, debt, and depression, that describes his army. How would you like to have the army? We'll call it the 3D army. Tell me about your men. Well, they're all in distress, they're all heavily in debt, and most of them are depressed. But these are the 400 men that David has to work with him. You see, one of the things you'll notice throughout all of the Old Covenant is that God consistently works through the weak. He works through the other. It's not the firstborn, but the second. It's not the woman who has all the children, but the barren one. You go back to the beginning of Samuel, and it's Hannah that he is working through. It's amazing how in the story of God's providence, it's almost always through the weak and the depressed and the poor that he does his amazing redemptive work. And so these all meet, and they begin to team up with David, and David begins this next phase in his life, but he realizes that he can't have so many people with him, and some of them are simply going to be of no use to him as he's on the run, and some of them might actually be under a serious amount of risk. And so David does something very interesting. He takes his parents, and he goes all the way east. So if you were to look at a map, for example, like the one that's in your bulletin today, if you're over the age of 40, no, it's not a joke. I didn't put it in there just to prove to you you can't see anymore. I know what that's like. It was as big as we could make it. But you might notice that the kids have a kid's bulletin as well today, and their map is a little bit larger. And if you're missing anything, then today at lunch you can ask them, and they'll tell you what those name places are. But listen, what you'll notice in that is that he goes all the way east into the land of Moab, and, and one of the things that I, I want to make sure we understand about this is just the drama, kind of how it unfolds. I guess, first of all, if, if you were to look at the geography of Israel, you would have to understand that, really, there's no way to go anywhere in a straight line. So even if it doesn't look very far when you're looking at it, you can't go in a straight line. There's so many hills and there's so many valleys. And to actually go all the way around to the place where he was going would have taken a long time. But he does that. And he intentionally moves all the way out so that he can drop off his parents in Moab. You see that in verse 3 of chapter 22. Why Moab? Well, let me, let me offer a suggestion. Moab, again, was one of the pagan nations. Remember, Moab was not in Israel. He had to go out of Israel to find protection for his own parents, even though he was the anointed king. And I imagine the conversation might go something like this. Why would we want to take your parents, David? You're an Israelite. Go find a place in Israel for your parents. And he says, everyone's against me. Everyone's pursuing me. I'm afraid they're going to kill my parents. And so he has to convince the Moabites. How does he do that? Well, it might go something like this. He would say, do you realize my father is part Moabite? Do you remember in the book of Ruth how it ends? That Ruth and Boaz get married, and they have a son named Obed, and Obed has a son named Jesse. Guess what Jesse that is? It's this Jesse. It's David's dad. And so David's dad could say, my, my grandma's Ruth, she was a Moabite. And in that culture, hospitality to this day still is extremely important. And they would have received him in, and they took him. But interestingly enough, while David's all the way out there, where it might seem a little safer, a prophet arrives. And we don't really know much about him, but this prophet says to David, you must go back. So if you look down at 22, verse 5, then the prophet Gad came to David and said, Do not remain here in this stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. This is really important for the next part of this chapter because uh, the scene shifts, and here's Saul. Saul's standing by the tamarisk tree, and, 
And this is sad Saul. Sad Saul. Sad, the narcissistic, insecure leader is lamenting to the people around him saying, woe is me, everyone's against me. None of you told me that all these people were conspiring against me. None of you told me that my son Jonathan was out there visiting David. Poor me, doesn't anybody care about me? This is his nature. What it's like to deal with Saul. Saul was so wrapped up in himself, all he could think about was himself. And then somebody speaks up. And this is something that if you were to be at the scene, you would know that something really important was happening. There's a man named Doeg. And he's always called Doeg the Edomite. Edomites were another enemy of Israel. And what we didn't mention earlier is that the narrator tells us that Doeg was at Nob. He had been detained, it says, by the Lord. Something had happened. Something was holding him up. And there he was, and he witnessed what happened when Ahimelech gave David, the sword of Saul. And Doeg now is here again. And you would be meant to recognize him. And while Saul is lamenting that nobody's on his team, Doeg the Edomite steps up and says, I know what happened. I saw Ahimelech give David a sword. I saw Ahimelech give him the bread. Immediately Saul decides that Ahimelech is against him. Ahimelech is the one who's going to try to take down his kingdom. And so he sends for him right away. And he brings Ahimelech in, and all of the priests of Nob, almost a hundred of them, and he says, why have you conspired against me with David? And Ahimelech says, truthfully, I have no idea what you're talking about. Why are you upset with David? From what I can tell, from what I'm looking at, from my perspective, David's been really loyal to you. In fact, no one's been more loyal to you than David. And Saul's going to hear nothing of it. And so he says to the men who are there in his court, in his established palace, all of his guards, he says, you guys, kill the priests. And these trained soldiers say, I'm not going to kill an unarmed priest. The soldiers wear the sword. The priests wear the linen garments and serve before the Lord. And they're at a stalemate. What are we going to do? Saul's power is definitely on the rocks here. Saul is not happy. He's ordering his men to do it, and they are saying no to a direct order. But unfortunately, there's somebody else in the room, and that's Doeg. And Doeg, the Edomite, says, no problem, I'll do it. And Doeg, it says, takes his sword, and he kills 85 priests, slaughters them. But there's more. Then he goes to Nob, and he slaughters their wives, and he slaughters their children, and he slaughters their animals. Now, if you were a Hebrew reader of this, you would say, he put them under the ban. He is doing to this place where God's presence was in terms of the instruments and the furniture of the temple. He is bringing to that city total destruction. Man, woman, child, animals. It's almost like Doeg is acting in the same way that the children of Israel were to act when it comes to destroying the enemies of God. Doeg, an enemy of God, has come to destroy the presence of God and the people of God. And this under the observation and the condoning of Saul. So this is the situation we have. And interestingly enough, there is one escapee. His name is Abiathar. Now we're going to hear more about Abiathar later. 
because Abiathar is the one lone descendant of a man named Eli. I know I'm going to ask you to remember back a few weeks now, but do you remember that one of the things that God said through Samuel to Eli was that his kingdom, his house, his rule over the high priestly responsibilities in Israel would be destroyed. No one from his house would serve. We're going to see a little bit later on that Abiathar was the last of his house, and eventually even Abiathar is stripped of his responsibility, and the house goes to another. But we'll get to that later. For now, this one Abiathar is the guy who escaped, and he escaped, and he finds David. And he brings the ephod. The ephod was something you wore over your priestly garments. We don't exactly know how it worked, but there was something in there that revealed God's will. Something about the umim and thumim, uh, the way that it was used, it revealed God's will in a situation. And so now you've got this Abiathar. He escapes. He shows up with David. And now David has a priest. And David says to him, I take responsibility for what happened to your household. This is one of the first times in the scriptures where we see somebody taking on blame that wasn't theirs. David said, I'm to blame for that. I take that. You stay with me, and I'll keep you safe. And he did. Protected him his whole life. We see the humility of this true king as he trusts in Yahweh, though he is pursued by his enemies. Look at number two. He is also betrayed by his people. We see this in chapters 23 and 24. We can call this the two-city turnover. Two cities give over David. The first one is the city of Kela. So Kela is a city that belongs to the Israelites, and uh, the Philistines had come against it. In fact, they were a powerful army, and David goes over to rescue them. He entreats God. He says, what should I do? Should I go and attack? And God says, yes. And then his men are like, I don't know. Those guys are really powerful. We're, we're a small group. There's only 400 of us. We're really not that powerful. And he goes to the Lord again and again. The Lord says, no, you go. I will be with you. And so he goes, and he saves the city. And what's interesting, though, is that the city doesn't return any kind of gratitude. In fact, using the ephod that Abiathar brought to him, he asks of the Lord, will they turn me over? Will these people turn me over to Saul? And Abiathar, through that ephod, reveals that the Lord says, yeah, they will. They will turn you over. No gratitude. In fact, what they did was that they viewed this as an opportunity to get in good with the king. When you've got a narcissistic, diabolical ruler who advances his cause by destroying the people around him, you are going to find every way you can to get in his good graces. And everybody in the entire country becomes a spy. And so these people in Caleb were willing to turn David over. And so David leaves, and he finds himself down out of the way in a place called Ziph. Ziph was down in the wilderness. Ziph was far from everything. Ziph, in fact, was an area where most people wouldn't even try to go because it was so arid, it was so desolate. And that's where he goes to hide with his men. If you look down at chapter 23, picking up in verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And then 
chapter 23, verse 18, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. They made a covenant before Yahweh. And David and Jonathan promised to one another that they'll be loyal to each other. Jonathan will be loyal to David. He won't turn him over. And Jonathan and David will be loyal to Jonathan. And we see this because even after Jonathan dies, Jonathan's offspring are always protected by David. Even though they are the children of Saul, his enemy, David was always kind to those who came from Jonathan. He always protected them. And so as he's about to flee again, suddenly there's Saul and all of his army pursuing him. And God brings this miraculous provision. As they are about to close in on David, Saul and his 3,000 men, Saul gets word that the Philistines are on the war path again. And so they turn around and they stop pursuing David. And therefore, chapter 23, 28, so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And so David went up from there and he lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now, this is a really important part of the story, probably the part most of you know the best, because here's David in the rocks of En Gedi, living in the caves, and Saul is back again, and he's pursuing him. Look at chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. There's another spy. Somebody told him, that's where he is, that's where you're going to find him. And so Saul says, I'm going to go get David. He takes 3,000 of his men. And he pursues him all the way east. This is down by the Dead Sea. This also is in that wilderness area. And uh, as he approaches this space, the text says in the original that that Saul went into the cave to cover his feet. Uh, The ESV translates that he went into the cave to relieve himself. And what uh, Saul doesn't know is that all of David's men are hiding in the back part of the cave. So Saul goes into this makeshift you know, porta potty, and doesn't realize that 400 men are behind him. And you remember what the men said to David? They said, David, here's your chance. David, you're the anointed one. God has put Saul right in front of you. He has given you every opportunity to kill him. It would be irrational and ridiculous for you not to kill Saul now. It's your It's your chance. It's your throne. Go take it. And David says, no, I'm not going to kill him. But he walks up there close to Saul, creeps up, and he cuts off a corner of his robe. All the royal robes those days had these tassels hanging on the bottom. And so he likely grabbed one of those tassels and he cut that corner off. And then Saul doesn't know anything. Saul walks out of the cave and then David shows up outside afterward and he holds up the tassel. And he calls out to Saul. And the reason he does is is because when he was in the cave and he did that deed, his own conscience struck him. The text says his heart struck him. He says, I should not reach out my hand against God's anointed. I should not do this to mock Saul. I should not do this to assault Saul. I should not do this to drag Saul down. God is in control. He has anointed me king. I'll be king when it's God's time. In the meantime, I will wait. And so he goes out and he holds up the tassel and he says, essentially, Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul responds and they have this dialogue back and forth. And at the end of it, he makes this conclusion, verse 16 of chapter 24. 
As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. You know, this is the time where Saul appears to repent. This is when Saul walks the aisle. You know, David's up there playing just as I am. And Saul's like, I'm sorry. And he goes down and he makes this sort of profession, as it were. He says, I've changed. And David is smart, doesn't believe him. But Saul, as you'll soon see, this was a false repentance. But David did remind Saul that he will never kill him because he is God's anointed. God will do it in his good time. The humble king will trust in Yahweh, though he is pursued by his enemies and though he is betrayed by his people. But one more, he is vindicated by his works, beginning in chapter 25. This is where we get a really interesting start. It just says that Samuel, this beloved priest, died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. So we need to know that because in the next section that we'll look at next week, we see Samuel again, but this time it is somebody who has conjured up Samuel from the dead. So I believe this note is just a historical footnote so that we have Samuel dead and buried so that the next time we see him, we'll know what's going on. But Samuel's gone now. Samuel doesn't live to see the day when the man he anointed king is finally crowned. But look here at the vindication, beginning in chapter 25. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. This man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. This is the wonderful story of Nabal and Abigail and David. And I'd strongly encourage you to read this during the week on your own, but let me just summarize it for you. These men are out shearing Nabal's sheep, and he's got thousands of them. And David sends some of his men on his behalf to go and have a meeting with the servants of Nabal. And they say to these servants, look, your master has had all of his animals under our watchful eye, and none of us have gone down, even though we're hungry, and taken anything for ourselves, and we haven't let anybody else in that area come down and touch it. Your master has been able to run his business, and we have been acting kind of like a sanctified mafia, making sure that nobody is messing with you, but, unlike a mafia, we're not messing with your stuff either. We're watching over you and protecting you. And this word gets to Nabal, and Nabal says something very interesting. He says, even though they have come in the name of David, he says, who is David? Hold on to that thought, it's going to come back later. He says, who is David? Why am I going to give you anything? I've made this stuff for my men, for us. I'm not sharing anything with you. And word gets back to David, and David says to his men, strap on your swords. That's another great verse. Strap on your swords. David straps on his sword. And David's about to do something incredibly foolish. David is about to act like Saul. Saul is the one who goes and slaughters people. David's about to do the same thing. And by God's amazing grace, this remarkable, astonishing woman, a true helper, a true Azer Kenegdo, she comes out and she intercepts David. And she says to him, my husband, whose name means fool, is living up to his name. Please do not regard my idiot husband. 
and she gets one of the servants and she puts together a massive amount of food and she brings it out there as an offering to David. And she intercepts him and there are several specific areas that we could drop in on here, but let's just do a couple for interest's sake. Verse 14 of chapter 25, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master and he railed at them. This is what causes her to stand up. And verse 18, then Abigail made haste. If you're interested in the literature of the Bible, just notice this. Verse 18, she made haste. Verse 23, she made haste. Verse 34, unless you had made haste. I want you to see here that Abigail is taking on the responsibility herself. She's taking action. She is a woman of action. She's not asking permission. She's not seeing if it's okay with Nabal. She isn't doing any of that. She sees what has to happen, and like a true rescuer of her people, she steps in and tries to stop the hand of David and his men from slaughtering her family and all of the servants. And so she intercepts David, and she brings him 200 loaves. I'm in chapter 25, verse 18. 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep prepared, bunch of parched grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, lays them all on a donkey. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And then she does the very same thing David did earlier. Notice what she says, verse 24 of chapter 25. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She is taking on the guilt of her stupid husband, Why? Because she wants to rescue her people. Look ahead, chapter 25, look at verse 34. For as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come down to meet me, truly by morning there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. And so in the next verse, David says to her, go to your house in peace, I have obeyed your voice. The king obeys the voice of the wise woman, Abigail. And I've granted your petition. Now Abigail comes back and Nabal is doing what Nabal does. And he's out partying and he's partying like a king, it says. He's actually got a feast like a king would have. And he's very, very drunk. And so she says nothing to him that night, but in the next morning, after the wine has gone out of him, finds out what happened. And he became like a stone, it says. I think that's a way of saying he had a stroke, he was paralyzed, and ten days later, God struck him and killed him. This is the consequence. David vindicated in his actions. David vindicated by not killing Nabal. David, though he could have, was held back from committing this sin against the Lord by this wise woman, and God, in his perfect timing, took care of his enemies. Brothers and sisters, if there's one takeaway from this, please note this. In due time, God takes care of your enemies. You don't need to take providence into your own hands. Well, this leads us now to the last chapter that we're going to take a look at. David, because his wife, at the very end of chapter 25, we find out his wife has been given to somebody else. David is now without a wife, and Abigail happens to be without a husband. So, they solved that problem. 
And David takes Abigail to be his wife. Now, I think that's okay. Some people think that was polygamy. It would seem as though David has concluded that his wife has been taken away from him, and she's married somebody else. She's already married to somebody else. So he marries Abigail. That one, like, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that one sort of for the, someone else to figure out. But I do know the second wife was a problem. Okay? We know from Deuteronomy 17, 17, kings are not to be multiplying wives. So even though we might give him a pass on Abigail, we can't give him a pass on the second one. You'll notice at the end of chapter 5, he took two wives. And this is to remind us that this is not the great David. This is not the king that we're to look for. This is not the Messiah. This man is a sinner just like everybody else. But as we look at chapter 26, we see the next part. We're back here in the land of Ziph. And once again, we've got Saul's army gathered together. They're trying to pursue David. And David goes down to spy them out, and God puts all the men to sleep in a special kind of deep sleep. And David walks through the camp, and he finds Saul. And there's Saul lying there, and he's got his spear, the one he would use to try to pin David to the wall. Now it's pinned into the ground by his head. And Abner, the one who's supposed to be looking after him and watching out for him, is lying there as well, and he's asleep. And so once again, his men are like, hey, here's your chance. Let me do it. One of his soldiers is like, look, man, it's only going to take me one quick second. I'm going to take that spear, and I'm just going to drop it down. I can do it super quiet. Done it before. It's going to go right through his head. It's going to be super quick. We're going to pin him to the ground, and then we're out of here. And then it would be over. And you know what? If, if that was us, maybe we would say, that's not a bad plan. You know, I've, I'm tired of being pursued by this guy. I've already got the anointing. I know that I'm king. This is all legal. But he doesn't. Instead, what he does is he takes the spear and he takes the water jug that was by his head and he runs away. And they stand up there on the hilltop and he calls out and he starts mocking Abner. Abner, your bodyguard. Why were you sleeping? You deserve to die, Abner. I was able to cruise right down there, me and my friend, and we were able to steal the spear, steal the water jug, and get out of there. You never even noticed us. You never stirred. You were sleeping like a baby. We could have killed the king. And he calls out, and he essentially mocks him. And once again, Saul responds. And this time, Saul again seems to be confessing his sin. Look at verse 19 of 26. Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is Yahweh who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before Yahweh. May I call down a curse upon anyone who says that I am after you to try to kill you. For they have driven me out this day, and I should have no share in the heritage of Yahweh, saying, go serve other gods. If I'm lying, may I be cursed. If they're lying, may they be cursed. Why? Because I am not going to raise my hand against God's anointed. And then Saul, once again, verse 21, Saul's already walked the aisle, and then he's turned and tried to kill David again. So this is Saul, like, rededicating his life. And Saul says another false conversion. I have sinned. You know, this is, kind of, this is like a Jimmy Swaggart kind of thing. He's weeping and hollering and carrying on and making it seem like he's so repentant. I've sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly. I've made a great mistake. Well, David's wise to him now. David says, all right, send one of your men up here. I'm going to give you your spear back. I'm going to give you your water jug back. But I'm not coming down. 
The Lord will judge between the two of us. But I'm not going to kill you. Instead, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust the Lord, even though I'm pursued by my enemies. I'm going to trust the Lord, even though I'm betrayed by my own people. And I'm going to trust the Lord because at the end of the day, I think he will vindicate my actions as I have sought to honor him instead of advancing myself. Now, what I'd like to do now is take this for you and just see if we can apply it a little bit. I was listening to a friend of mine explain application, and he used a great metaphor. He said it's like taking stain and applying it to wood. And if we take that out, that's really what we're talking about, taking this text and how does that apply? How does that lay on top of us? What do you do with stain? You put it over that wood and it, and it brings out the color in the wood. It brings out the grain in the wood. It brings out all the different rings and layers that have happened over the years as that tree has grown. It even brings out all the twists and turns that have happened as that tree has undergone stress. And kind of in the same way, let's, let's look at it that way. We're going to apply this in our context. Maybe we can put some, some beautiful color to some of the things that we've suffered. Let's just start with the first one in terms of being pursued by enemies. Let's be realistic for a moment. Sometimes the wicked people succeed and innocent people suffer. The women and children in Nob were not guilty of anything. And yet because we live in a fallen world, horrible things sometimes happen to innocent people. And sometimes horrible things are going to happen to you. You may suffer at the hands of powerful, narcissistic people who seem to take delight in making your life miserable, who use their power to make much of themselves instead of trying to help those who are weaker. The answer is to look to texts like this and be reminded that in all of it, God remains faithful. In terms of being betrayed by people, that's common. You're probably all going to experience that at some point in your life. But even if you are not experiencing betrayal right now by somebody, just, just file this one away because I can pretty much guarantee at some point in your life you will. At some point in your life, you're going to be wrestling with that horrible reality that somebody close to you has completely betrayed you, lied to you, and then done something to harm you. But the answer is the same. God remains faithful. In terms of being vindicated by works, let's remember that integrity is often costly. In fact, one of the most expensive things you can do, one of the highest risk activities you can be involved in is speaking truth to power. And that's what you have in accounts like this. Over and over again, people stood up and they spoke the truth. Ahimelech spoke the truth and it cost him his life. Abigail spoke the truth and it could have cost her her life. David speaks the truth, and he was pursued for it. It doesn't mean you stop speaking the truth. It just means that you anchor your hope in the fact that, once again, God remains faithful. All of this, of course, points to Christ. We can't read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, now because we know how the story ends. We know what this is pointing to. We're able to see all of these connections now as we look back. The covenant with David and the throne of Israel point to Christ. Christ, too, was pursued by his enemies. In fact, I find it amazing that the example he gives when his men were being pursued by the religious leaders, accused of doing things they shouldn't on the Sabbath, the example Jesus uses in Mark chapter 2 
is the example of David taking the bread from Nob. He says, look, when David needed the bread, that sacred bread that wasn't for anybody else, it was given to David. Why? Because the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was a way to give man a break, a rest. Man wasn't made to conform to the Sabbath. It's amazing that in all of the pursuit against David as he is being constantly hunted down, he's in caves writing psalms. I think the true heart that is content in the sovereignty of God is able to rest even in the midst of horrible pursuits and trials. Secondly, he was betrayed by his people. The nation betrayed Christ. His own disciples betrayed Christ. Judas betrayed Christ. I think back in chapter 25, verse 9 of 1 Samuel, where Nabal says, who is David? Think about Jesus turning to Peter and saying, who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, who am I? Peter. And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. I know who you are. Christ was overlooked and rejected by everybody except only a few. Only a few have been given the knowledge of who he really is. And I want to take a moment this morning and just speak to some of you today who maybe haven't believed the gospel. You're not a Christian. Again, maybe this is all very new to you. What Peter said to Jesus was that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the one who was promised, who would come, who would bear the iniquity of others, just like David tried to do with Abiathar, just like Abigail tried to do with Nabal and the others the one who really took upon himself but did it perfectly, actually took all of your sin and all the punishment that should have been poured out upon you because of it and paid for it himself. And then, because he lived perfectly where everybody else failed, including David, this true David, the son of David, Christ, came, lived out a perfect life, and he gave you that righteousness So that your only merit, the only thing you will ever present to God in the final judgment, isn't looking back on your life, but looking at the life of Christ. Because if it was your life, you would see enough sin to where you would have no hope. And if it was your life, you wouldn't see enough good works to ever have hope. But when you turn and you see what Christ has done, there is only hope. That is the great blessed hope that we wait for. And you say, well, how do I make that my own? How do I get clothed with that kind of righteousness? And the answer is that you put your faith, your trust in Christ. You say, I'm trusting in you for my salvation, not in myself. I throw away all the other things that I've been looking at as a way to make it, and I put everything in on you. The Scripture says that when you do that, it means that your heart's been made alive. You've been made a new creature by the Holy Spirit. Your your dead heart has been made alive and your eyes have been opened and your mind has been made clear and now you see it for what it is and you receive it from Him. Well, there's just one more and then we'll close. Vindicated by works. Did Christ do this? I believe so. His perfect, active obedience. In the same way, in chapter 26, 18, when the question is asked, what evil has David done? The question was also asked by Pilate, what evil has Christ done? Hundreds of years later, Pilate parades Jesus out before the crowd, and in Matthew 27, he says to them, what has this man done? And nobody wanted to reason. Nobody wanted to explain. They just said, crucify him, crucify him. You say, well, I thought you told me that you're vindicated by your works. Well, 
Here's the one exception. Christ came in order to be so perfect that he could have been vindicated by his works, but chose to take on the sin of those who hadn't, so that in dying, he could bring perfection to those who had sinned and kill the sin of those who could not perfect themselves. He's the one who was pursued. He's the one who was betrayed. He is the one who was vindicated at his resurrection and his ascension. And he, the true king, has been anointed. But like David is waiting for that day when he will return to judge the living and the dead and to establish his reign. So come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time together in the book of Samuel. As we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, may we be reminded of grace and kindness of the gospel. That you, our sinless substitute, our perfect perfection, our ultimate loving husband, our kind and compassionate Lord, invites us to this feast to be reminded that the time will come when we will sit with you around your table and dine in eternal bliss forevermore in your presence. Fill our hearts with joy as we sing and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Amen.